Good evening. If you would, open with me in your Bibles for our study this evening in the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. This will be the second in the series of messages on the subject of Gideon. be the second part of Gideon's call. And we'll look tonight at Gideon's excuse for not following the command of God and draw upon that and see how we as Christians many times ask to be excused in our service to God and see how God views that. Judges chapter 6, we'll take up in the narrative in verse 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. The last session, we looked at the call of Gideon. We saw Gideon's questions when God said he was going to raise up Gideon to deliver the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. And Gideon had three questions, which we looked at in the first portion of this message. In verse 13, those questions were, If the Lord be with us, he questioned whether God was still with Israel. Why has all this befallen us? Why are we in the mess we're in? And then thirdly, where are all the miracles that God used to do for his people Israel? And we saw that these were questions of doubt and unbelief, and that the problem was not that God had forsaken Israel, but Israel had turned to idols and turned their back on God. And that was the reason why the Midianites had been allowed to persecute them. And in regard to miracles, miracles are under the control of the sovereign God. He grants miracles when and where he will. And we saw that the greatest miracle of all is to receive a call from God in the gospel. And now tonight we want to look at Gideon's, not his questions, but his asking to be excused when God had called him to service. Now, the analogy that we're trying to draw is to show that if God has saved us out of the kingdom of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, he has called us to serve him. Now, whatever capacity and gifts he may bestow upon us in his kingdom, that's according to his own sovereign dispensing of the gifts. But all Christians are called to serve God. Not all are called to be ministers, prophets, apostles, and so forth. But all are called to serve him, and they are placed in the body sovereignly as the Lord wills to dispense the spiritual gifts. God doesn't just, according to 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, he doesn't just say, here's a bunch of spiritual gifts out here on the shelf. Every Christian, choose what gifts you want. No, the Lord dispenses the gifts as he wills. And he gives some special gifts, but all Christians are called to serve him. 
So from this, then we want to see how Gideon began to say, well, wait a minute, I have some reason to be excused uh, in the call. And he appeared to be very humble in that he said this, How, my Lord, or O oh, my Lord, verse 15, shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor. We don't have any wealth or any means to get up an army and supply the needs of the army. And I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the youngest. So surely, Lord, you're not calling me because you haven't equipped me. That's his excuse. You haven't given me any spiritual or leadership gifts. And if you are truly called, then surely you would have called someone who would have been gifted and who would have had influence to have been able to rally the army of Israel behind them and their leadership. Now, the issue that Gideon was making here was not who God was and what God could do, but the issue, as Gideon saw it, was who he was and what he couldn't do. And is that not so common with much of the lot of God's people? We think, well, we are just nobodies, we're nothings, when in reality we may but be using that as an excuse not to serve the God of heaven and earth. And the issue is not really our humility or our littleness. The issue is the bigness of the God who calls us. And if God calls us to serve us, to serve him, he will equip us and give us the grace to do that which he asks out of us in his kingdom. Now, this was the same case that Moses experienced when he was called. You remember, he appealed to his own inabilities and his lack of leadership, abilities, and gifts. Look over in Exodus Keep your location there in the book of Judges and go over to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10. God has called Moses now to deliver Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And Moses gives an excuse. His excuse runs like this. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. That is, I'm not a good orbiter. Neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Evidently, a slow tongue meant somewhat of maybe a stammering tongue. One that could not speak fluently and give flowing sentences, or maybe he may have had a speech impediment. We cannot be certain. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? <laughs> Is that not a rebuke? Or who maketh the dumb? That is, not mentally, but who makes the one who cannot speak? That's what a dumb person is. Or death, or the seeing, or the blind, have I, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. Now, our Lord did not consider Moses' excuse based upon his lack of leadership ability and his ability to speak as being sufficient to justify him refusing the call of God. Now, why? How did God take it? Now, listen carefully. God took it as 
a reproach upon his own wisdom in creating Moses the way that he had done so. Did you catch there that God assumed responsibility for the physical gifts that a person has when they come into the world? Now, most of us readily as God's people acknowledge that it is God who grants spiritual gifts. But we somehow think that some people just don't get the, what is it, the uh, draw or whatever it's, it's called when they are born. They just don't get the right elements together and uh, some get all the brains and some get all the looks and some get seemingly little of either. And we are prone to say, well, that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it happened in the womb. God says, wait a minute, that's an attack upon my wisdom as a creator. I'm the one who determines the physical characteristics of a person when they're born. I have appointed the bounds of all men's habitation. Now, my friend, if you love God, that ought to help you with your own physical insecurities. Hmm? I remember talking with a young lady one time. She was, quite frankly, very homely, and she knew it. And uh, she was lamenting in my office that she was so unbecoming that there would be no one who would ever want to marry her. She was just so unbecoming. And that's a difficult task when you're sitting there to try to be an encouragement, and yet at the same time, you have to be truthful with your handling of the character of God. And finally, I kept listening, kept listening, and I began to detect... uh, something that was coming out, that really her lament and her anger that began to be displayed was against God himself. And yet she was a Christian young woman. And finally I was enabled to show her from the scriptures that it is God who makes every human being as unique as a snowflake. And no person, if they're going to have peace with God and their fellow man in this life, should ever compare their physical beauty, their spiritual or mental capacities with somebody else and complain to God, why have you made me thus? God has given us the degree of brains, the degree of looks, the degree of mentality that he has purpose for us, and we ought to thank him and praise him for it, regardless of what that might be. Now, God hasn't given me the brightest IQ of the ministers which I know. Most of what I have knowledge of the Scripture has come through diligent study. It hasn't come intuitively. It's had to be by trial and error. But it, bless God, it's not based on a minister's call on IQ. Moses tried to use his IQ and his eloquency as an excuse. God said, I won't accept it. Moses, I'm the one who formed your mouth. Don't you forget that, and you better be quiet, or else you'll be discrediting your very creator who formed you. 
And so, believer here this evening, whatever you have in the service of God, if he's called you to serve him, do not say, oh, I'm such a nobody, he could never use me. Or, Brother Jim, I've made such a mess out of my life in the past, it's too late now. That's not true. That's not true. It is not your capabilities, it is the capabilities of God who is in heaven to bless whatever instruments that he so sees best to use. So men and women, boys and girls, see yourself as unique, and God has called you to work in the kingdom. But he will give you a portion of that vineyard, and you find contentment there, and look to him and his gifts and his ability, not in your own and using that for an excuse. So the Lord took Moses' excuse as a reflection upon his own creative wisdom, and he rebuked Moses for it. Now, it's a common experience of Christians to sometimes use excuses like Moses and Gideon. They refuse to answer the call of God to serve him, and we try to justify ourselves by claiming that we are insufficiently equipped to serve the Lord. We don't have enough gifts. We don't have enough social position. Sometimes we think, well, I'm not a a member of the banking administration, so I could not have any influence to help the church prosper and grow. Others say, well, I'm poor. I don't have enough wealth. I can't really contribute anything that might help the work of God prosper here at the Oakland Baptist Church. I can't do that. So we begin to major on what we can't do and what we're not. And we forget that it is God who is called. And we forget the answer, has God made a mistake in calling us? (laughs) Well, that seems to be what both Gideon and Moses seem to be implying back to God. Lord, you must have made a mistake. Because... You didn't equip us to use us, and we don't have the gifts. The question is not what we are or what we have or what we can do. The question is altogether, who is God, what does God have, and what can God do? I don't care how eloquent a message I may bring. It's sounding brass and tinkling cymbal if God doesn't anoint that message. I don't care if you're a banker and you can contribute $10,000 a week to the Oakland Baptist Church. If God doesn't anoint that offering, it will come to naught and it will become like the manna that rotted in the middle of the camp. It's not always the rich people who help the church the most. Sometimes those who have much to give are like Ananias and Sapphira. They're giving it for their own motivation and for their own self-interest. And it works havoc and division in the church. You say, well, Brother Jim, I, I'm not, I haven't been as privileged as some uh, in that I haven't been spared from a life of sin and immorality. And if you knew my past, uh, all the people that know me, they, they know what kind of a life I've lived. And I could never be useful in helping the church here to grow. Not so. 
It's not a question of who you are or who you were. It's a question of whether or not God has called you to serve Him in this capacity and whether He will anoint your service and make you a blessing unto others. Who knows, but what maybe some of the people that you may have associated with and you could say, oh, we went out and we sinned together. They know what I'm like. I could never have any influence over them. That wasn't what the woman at the well thought, was it? (laughs) She had had, what, five husbands, and the one that she'd lived with now, was living with, was not her husband's, and yet when Jesus told her about who he was, she ran right back to all those acquaintances she'd had associations with, and Cud said, come see a man which told me everything about me. Now look at her background, but look how God was pleased to use her. Oh, my people, if God calls us, the call itself is the guarantee that He will be the reserve and He will provide the grace for all the service to which He calls us. God does not depend upon our intelligence, our genius, our abilities, or anything that we may have or hope to be. He takes the weakest and the basest, the most despised things of the world and uses them for His own glory. Keep your location in the book of Judges and go to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 23. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things, that is, despised of the world, things which are despised hath God chosen, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Why is God going about it this way? So that no flesh should, what? Glory in his presence. Now that just might ought to tell us that if we think that we are so lacking in physical and spiritual gifts here in our fellowship, in our body, that we can never hope to be used of God because of our littleness, my friend, that ought to cause us to get our eyes off of our littleness and begin to focus them upon the greatness of our God who is in heaven. I think I recounted one time, I hear a couple of three years ago, had an individual in the church said, well, since we have a limited-sized congregation here. He said, I think that perhaps we ought to sell our property and go get a little church somewhere because he said, you know, whenever you preach the doctrines of grace, you're never going to have a big crowd. (laughs) That's Gideon. That's Moses. Lord, look what you've got to work with. (laughs) You've got a bunch of nobodies. You've got a bunch of people that nobody will pay any attention to. Who has believed our report? What can we get done? And again, it is not for us to focus upon who we are. 
but upon who God is and what he can do when he's pleased to bless despised and insignificant instruments. So yes, God does speak to the humble. He does give grace unto the humble. But at the same time, while that we are not to boast in our abilities as to what we are, yet we're also not to offer up excuses unto God when he calls us to his service for what we are. You say, well, I can't do this or I can't do that. So you can't. Without Christ, we can do nothing. But through him, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. If you have talents and gifts in whatever capacity, ask the Lord to use your little basket of loaves and fishes and for him to multiply it. And who knows, the time may come in which that there may be people that you have been influential in bringing into the fellowship of this church. So, keep your eye upon the Lord. Let's go back to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah. What lesson is God teaching us in Gideon's excuse? Go to the fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah, right toward the close of the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Look down in uh, verse 10. The account here is Zerubbabel has been given the commission to refinish the temple in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and oh, there's so much work to be done. It just looked like that nothing could get accomplished because of all the destruction of the former temple was on the spot, had to be cleaned off, and a new temple built. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with these, with those seven. These are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Notice the question that God asked, who hath despised the day of small things? Is that not what Gideon's despising? Lord, you can't really be calling me. I'm the littlest of the family. And we're the poorest family in one of the smallest tribes in all of Israel. Surely you wouldn't be calling me to serve you because you haven't equipped me to do so. God says, don't despise the day of small things, of small beginnings. That's the lesson that God's teaching us in Gideon's excuse, that he uses the weak and despised things. He uses the small and the insignificant things. What else is he teaching us? Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord, and to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by what? My spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What's that but saying? Not by might. Not by organizational programs and force do I work. Not by organized armies. But by my spirit I will bring to pass my purposes. So here is our hope. Here is what enables me to preach. Is to see that it is God's spirit which must bring forth the results. 
I may plant, another may water, but only God can bring forth the increase. And I must leave that in His hands. But I must not excuse myself by saying, I cannot speak to others. I cannot plant. I can't water. For in doing so, I'm calling God's wisdom into effect for the gifts that He has given me both physically and spiritually. Early part of my ministry, I used to sit and reason, even though that others looked to me, even as a young minister, and comments would come to me, my, I wish I had the speaking or the expository gifts of Jim Gables. As a young minister, those statements began coming back to me, and yet I paid no attention to them because what I was sitting there wishing, I wish I had the organizational ministry and the gifts of Dr. Vick and -and so-and-so out here. These men who had built these big churches. Oh, if I just had the money, if I just had the budget to work with, they had to work with. How much more successful we could be in promoting the kingdom of God in our little Dominion. And my friend, there's that tendency in all of us. Tendency to despise what God has given to you personally and look around and say, oh, I wish I had what brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so had. I wish I had their prestige or their role. What is God teaching us? It is not by might. It's not by organizational ability, but it's by my spirit saith the Lord. Peter seemed to, in his studenthood under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, seemed to have reached a point where he seemed to have a pretty high opinion of himself. He would say that, oh, all these others deny you, I'll never deny you. And yet he did. He denied the Lord before a little maid and even cursed him. And then, a short time later, that same man is speaking, and the Spirit of God descends upon him on what was called the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls were converted. Now, is that to be attributed to Peter's powers? No. He didn't even have enough courage to influence one little maiden to look to the Lord. And yet now he speaks to the multitudes who had had a part in the crucifixion of the Lord, and they are broken in spirit and cry out and interrupt his sermon by saying, What must we do? What was the difference? It was not by might nor by Peter's power, but it was by the Spirit of the living God. And that's what made the difference. And my people, that's the difference as to where we're at tonight and where we may be tomorrow. It's whatever God's anointing is pleased to put upon us. But let's keep our eye on Him and not upon our inadequacies and offer them up as an excuse. Second Corinthians, or rather, let's go to Psalm before we go to the New Testament. Psalm chapter 46. What else is God teaching us in Gideon's excuse? Psalm 46. Verse 9, read verse 8 first. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow, cutteth the spear in sunder. 
He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. That's what God's teaching Gideon. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Pause and think on that. Pause and reflect. Be still, Gideon. Be still, Moses. And know that I'm the God who calls. And I give sufficiency to those whom I call into my service. That's what God's teaching us in Gideon's excuse. I'm just a little nobody. My family's poor. And I'm the youngest of the family. Surely you couldn't be calling me. God's saying to Gideon, you be still. Close your mouth and know that I am the God. And I will be honored in the midst of the heathen. I will bring people to bow at the footstool of my son. Even though the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. Yet God says, I will declare the decree. This day have I set my son upon the holy hill of Zion. Let us look to the Lord in that sense. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. What is God teaching us in the call of Gideon and in Gideon's excuse? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is who? Is of God. There's what he's teaching us. The sufficiency for the service to respond to God's call is of God. Who he calls, he offers by grace to do what he has called us to do. John 15:5, our Lord states, without me you can do nothing. That's what he's teaching us in the call of Gideon. The one thing that God wants from his people is not intellect, not power, not position, not wealth, but the one thing that he seeks and the one thing that moves God, we can use that expression, is faith in his call. That's what he looks for. See whether that we will trust him as to who he is. And my friend, God says he has the ability to save sinners. And if you have been made aware that you are one of the most weakest sinful people that ever lived, then you look to God. God says, I have the ability to save somebody like you. You keep your eye on him, not upon your weakness. Look unto him. He looks for faith. Go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and verse 9. Here's the story of the Roman centurion who had a sick child, or rather a sick servant. And uh, this fellow was a very generous individual. He had done many things for the Jews. But look how our Lord commended him, and what he commended him for. Luke 7, verse 1, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, 
that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loved our nation and hath built us a what? A synagogue. <laughs> he loves the Jewish people and he has built them assembly places. He built us a synagogue. Now here's a wealthy man. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. That is, I don't have a right to ask you to do this. But you just say the word, and I know you can heal my servant. Now, that's faith. That's trust. Look on. He he informs Jesus, I am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. The man says, I'm a leader. I have authority over others. I tell others what to do. But I don't tell you what to do, Master. But I know you can do it if it so pleases you. That's the position that God wants us in, my people. Now, I want you to look at all of what this man had to commend himself and what the other people thought of this man. They said, Master, this man's worthy. Go and heal his servant because he has loved the people of Israel, God's people. And he's loved them so much that he's given them of his wealth and has built them a meeting place, a synagogue. I want you to note that none of that influenced Jesus, but one thing did. What was it that stood out in Jesus' mind about this Roman centurion? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now, that's extreme words coming from God in the flesh. He marveled. This person moved the Master. He marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to their house found the servant whole that had been sick. What was the one facet about the centurion that moved the heart of the master? His faith. That he believed that Jesus was able to do and heal his servant if it so pleased him to do so. But he said, I know what it's like to be a master. I say to a person, go, or I say to a person, sit. And they're under my authority. I'm under your authority. And I don't order you to what to do. I don't order you. I don't command you to heal my servant. Oh, that the so-called faith healers would read this portion of Scripture. Those running around and saying, I command it done. My, my. I wonder if Jesus would come in on the scene and say, look at that person's faith. He's commanding me to do something. No, The Roman centurion moved the heart of the master because he knew that Jesus had the power to heal. But he placed his faith in the wisdom of Jesus to do what his wisdom saw best to do. 
He believed he had both power and wisdom, but he would leave it up to the Master to do what the Master saw was best. That's faith, my people. And you need that kind of faith when the doctor tells you you've got a terminal disease and you just got a short time to live according to their diagnosis. You need to have the faith of the centurion. Instead of going to the master and saying, Oh, well, master of God, here, I've gone to church for 20 years now. Surely, surely, this is something that you'd heal me. I've tithed for 20 years. I've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church. Surely you'll raise me up from this bed of affliction. No, what will move the Master is for you to say in that experience that crisis comes in your life, Lord, I don't command you, but I know you can do it, and I'll leave it to your discretion to do so. This is what God's teaching us in the excuse of Gideon is to not look to our incapacities, but to look to the God who calls, the God who can speak and raise the dead, the God who can move mountains, we look unto Him. Without faith it is impossible to what? To please Him. That's what the Scripture says. And with faith we can move what? Mountains. You say, you mean if I just think positive enough I can move a mountain? No, that's the mistake the faith healers make. The issue is whether or not God wants a mountain moved. <laughs> you see? If you believe God, if it so pleases Him to move that mountain, then you have faith in God, not in your faith, you see. And this is what many people make in this mistake of having faith in their faith. That's not what our faith is to have its object at. Our faith is to have an object, and it's in the God who can move mountains. And God puts certain mountains there for the people, and it appears like that He's pretty well content where they where He put them. I haven't studied uh, anywhere in church history where God has moved a whole lot of mountain ranges in the last two thousand years. But that's not the issue. Could He, if it so pleased Him? Could he take the Rocky Mountains and put them down along the coast of Florida? Could he? He certainly could. And it is the example of a person's faith who says, Lord, I don't command you to do that. But Lord, if you can, if you will rather, you can make my servant whole. And if it pleases you, raise me up from this bed of affliction. If not, go with me through the valley of the shadow of death. Now this will have some practical effect when it comes time for us to face a great crisis in our own lives. And none of us know how soon that next crisis may come, do we? We really don't. We really don't. It's all this encouragement as a person grows older to see the optimism and the hope of the youth that are coming on the scene. Do you remember some of you when you were a young person? Oh, now come on. You can remember so back there a ways, can't you? <laughs> you remember when you were getting out of high school or going through that period somewhere back in then that you were just so optimistic you'd just get out of the home? How, what a wonderful thing life was going to have in store for you? 
He found out now there's some disappointments along the way, hasn't there been? You've hit a few bumps in the road. It's encouraging to look to today's youth and see them coming on with the same optimism that some of us older people had. But also something we have they don't have. We've had some wisdom enough that we've gained from experience to recognize that not all of life's plans are going to come to pass the way that we planned them to. Young people get sick and die. Young people have automobile accidents. Young people lose parents. Young people lose children. The same as middle-aged and elderly people do. And when that crisis comes, and God says, are you still going to serve me? My people, let's don't say, oh, but look at the case I'm in. I can't be used here. How many testimonies have thrilled my heart of God's people dying in the, in the hospital bed who have been an encouragement to the nurses and to the doctors and have witnessed the faith of the Master on their deathbeds. Don't say I'm too little. Don't say I'm the least. While that may be true, look unto the greatness of your God. And may He be pleased to use us as a church in that capacity. Some of you are taking your calling seriously. And you're asking God to increase his effectiveness in your ministry. You want to see this church grow spiritually and financially and physically in numbers as well. Oh, may God sweep over all of us and enable us to see that it is not our littleness, but it is the greatness of God which shall be pleased to use us in his kingdom. Let's stand together.